Hello, fortune seekers, and welcome back to the official Mega Moth Studios podcast. This is episode five, and today we're going to be talking about one of the most important and possibly the, one of the most frustrating elements of game design, teaching people how to play the game that you designed. And in the second part of the podcast, we're going to be talking about when the student teaches the master or how we found out that our game was broken during playtesting and how we went about fixing it. So why don't you sit back, relax, and join us on this little journey that we're going to take. As always, I'm being joined today by my good friend, creative collaborator, and business partner, Daniel Ayub. Hey, Danny, how are you doing today? Hey, Joel, I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing just fine, and I'm realizing that I keep failing to introduce myself into the podcast, so why don't I go ahead and take care of that? I'm your host, Joel Watts. I uh, am also the co-founder of Megamoth Studios and the co-creator of X Seekers of Fortune, and Danny and I worked on that together. But yeah, no, uh, today's been a hectic one for me, Danny. I have to admit, I, uh, before sitting down to record this with you, I was all over town. Um, appointments followed by errands, followed by stopping for lunch, you know, that sort of thing. And especially because we're getting all set up for our trip to Norman, Oklahoma coming up this weekend, taking off not tomorrow, but the next day. So there was a lot of work to get done before, you know, taking off, I'm sure most of our viewers would uh, understand the woes of, uh, you know, getting ready for a big trip like that. Absolutely. You know, you got to get everything done. You got to be prepared. You know, mm -hmm. success is in the details. So. Yeah, that is very true. <laughs> well, have you have you been doing anything uh, today to prepare for that trip? Uh, yeah, I've just been, you know, taking it easy. Nothing too dramatic. Uh, just uh, hanging around the house and uh, making sure I've got my packing list set up. You know, this is this is a good concept for everyone at home. So in, in, in logistics and everyone who's ever received a package from Amazon will understand this. You have this idea of a packing list that warehouses use to make sure they're loading the right things in the box. And so when you get that receipt piece of paper uh, in that box, that's sort of a packing list. So I think when you're packing for a trip, it is a good idea to sit down and ask yourself, what do I need and make a packing list of your own. So I'm, I'm working on that today, and uh, I want to make sure I have all the goodies for all the people we're going to see, and most especially those uh, very sweet make-off-with stickers that we got uh, made for Comic Palooza that we never got to give out. Oh, man, I am so excited to get a hold of those because I've been... I've been wanting to have a sticker to put on my box because uh for people who are out of the know and i hope hopefully you'll be able to come out uh, to one of our events soon and see before we actually get really official looking boxes but we've just been using the kind of like cardboard boxes the white cardboard that you would get from your local game store just to put your random like you know draft uh leftovers uh in so i've been wanting to put a make off with sticker on on that for the longest time so they actually kind of it kind of looks more legit um but no i really agree with you also on the whole packing list i personally do um i would recommend to anybody out there if you have if you don't have a notes app get a notes app you know, uh, Apple Notes is great. I would highly recommend it. If you're an iPhone, Apple user, just go ahead and use that. But if you're not, there's plenty out there. But use use the checklist feature, create checklist for trips, because that way you know everything that you need to pack with you. And when you're packing up to come back home, you can double check the checklist to make sure you put everything in the bag. And you can get down to the minutia of even talk, you know, 
checking off how many pairs of socks you're bringing with you, but it's just a good idea to have that to reference. I myself am more of a spreadsheet junkie, so you know, Google Sheets, Microsoft Excel. I like making a, a fancy packing list with drop downs and things like that, so I can indicate when I have packed something. <laughs> what is the drop down saying? Packed, unpacked, un like what? Un, unregulated? I don't know. What what else would you put in the drop down for a package? <laughs> It'd probably be like just a simple packed yes or no. <laughs> Oh, what's the fun in that? You have to have like, you know, like the uh, existential answer. Like, I don't know. Well, yeah. uh, speaking of existential answers. Existential, yeah. Yes, I can't, can't speak today. That's all that running around has got me all tongue tied. Um, I wanted to go into the question of the week. Now, we okay. always like to quick. We love to kick off the show with a question of the week. That way that you get to know myself and Danny better. So this week's question, I wanted to keep it easy and just take a little uh, trip down memory lane. Danny, what was the first video game console you remember owning, and what was the first video game you played on it? Well, it was definitely the Super Nintendo. Awesome. Um, and I, I mean, honestly, I, I think it's probably Super Mario Brothers, Super Mario World. Like, I don't... That's the name of a game, right? <laughs> Yes, the Super Mario World is the Mario game that was for the Super NES. Was that Probably, the first one with Yoshi? That was the first one that it featured okay. Yoshi, yeah. Yeah, that and, was the first game that I that I remember playing on the SNES. Man, that is a really great first game to ever have because uh, that's just one of the all-time greats. Uh, I remember getting that one for Christmas a few years later. Um, just really quick before I give my answer, is there any, like... Do you have a favorite Mario power-up? Uh, in, in Super Mario World specifically, or in any Mario? Well, I'm sure, like, Mar I would say in any Mario. Hmm, that's a good question. I don't know. I, I mean, I always like, I mean, in Super Mario World, it's definitely the cape. He has the cape in that, right? Like, he can run and then Oh, fly. yeah. Mm -hmm. that's, that was my favorite power-up in that uh, version of uh, Super Mario. I mean, I've liked the raccoon tail uh, at various points. <laughs> I think that's a good one. Um, mm -hmm. But I do want to say, just for the record, that my favorite super, my favorite Mario game of all time. I don't know if it's technically a super or not, because I've not been as versed in the Mario, uh, you know, games as I, I probably should be. But I, I really love uh, Mario RPG. That was my favorite game growing up. You know, that's a good question. If that is a Super Mario game, and that you know, uh, quite topical. I'm sure you saw the news. I'm, or did you? Don't I absolutely don't know what. what, what oh yeah, I, I for I forget you're an adult with ch children, and I'm the one who's the child, like basically the childless, you know, bachelor. No, they're remaking Super Mario RPG for the Nintendo Switch right now Ooh. with upgraded graphics, so you're going to be able to share it with your children. Oh, and it looks really good. At first, like it, when I was watching the trailer, at first they were showing a cutscene, and it was like, I don't know if this the graphics translate to being this good. You know, because like the charm of those games were like they were trying to fake 3D graphics with isometric views and, you know, things like that. But once they got into the actual gameplay of like Mario walking on the map in the in, in battles, it was like it it does what any good old school game should do when it's um, upgraded, which is it looks like how you remember it looking. Ooh. You know, like kind of that the nostalgia and your memory sort of smooth everything out and make it look better in your brain. So, so yeah, Smitty's please. Yeah, it's a it's a full blown remake of Mario RPG. Ooh, I'm I'm very. I used to really really love it, and I had a friend. His name was Alex Johnson, and uh, I don't think we have to bleep this one out because it's uh, it's a it's a good memory. He uh, he invited me over to his house, 
and he was super obsessed with uh, Super Mario, and he had made these very, very, very high-quality Mario figurines at, like, age... I don't know. We couldn't have been older than, like, eight years old. Or, no, I don't... I don't. I have no idea, actually, when did Mario RPG came out. Maybe I was older. I... I don't know what I'm talking about. I mean, I would put... I remember getting it. It was like a big game for me. And here, sorry. I'm, I'm going to send you just a link to the trailer so you can check it out whenever you get a chance. I remember... I feel like I was like 9, 10. I remember I was feeling like I was old enough to get some of the... 9, uh, 10 sounds humor. right. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, I do feel like they had like a little bit more... Like they had, they had some jokes... For the people who knew, you know. The Axon Rangers, they were in the game, right? Like, that was the yeah. thing. And then what was the, and the Gino and uh-huh. Malo? Yeah. Uh, all, yeah. They're all back, baby. <laughs> what was the name of the guy who had, like, the weird facial hair and red, and he, like, you had to rescue Princess from him? I don't recall his name, but he had the big tower. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. I don't remember <sighs> what his name was. I love the game because it was, like, you got to see... You know, like, so much of Mario is just about Bowser and Koopas. And it's, like, kind of cool to be like, oh, no, there's there's a whole lot of stuff going on in Mario that we never even talk about. Oh, know? yeah. It's the first time. And very similar to Breath of the Wild, I would really like them to... Because Mario has been very much going on, like, multi-planet, you know, multi-land yeah. like things in the past few games. It would be nice to take the 3D Mario thing and just bring it down to the Mushroom Kingdom and maybe Breath of the Wild it. Where before, like, before Breath of the Wild, it was, like, the previous, you know, like, Ocarina of Time was, like, everybody's, like, version of Hyrule they had in their mind. At least f- for me. And, um... Then once Breath of the Wild came out, it so expanded Hyrule and put in all the nuances that it really uh, captured, you know, like cemented it. We Well, <laughs> I'm really loving this conversation, but we can't just turn into another nostalgia video game podcast. So let me just answer the question of the week for myself really fast. And it is pretty simple because mine is just one generation prior to yours. I remember my father, he uh, he was at some work event and I had to be like, two and a half, three-ish, somewhere around there. It's like, it's hard for me to remember what came first, my brother or the the Nintendo Entertainment System, the NES, into my home. But I remember my dad won it at some sort of work event and he brought it home and it had the combination Super Mario Brothers Duck Hunt cartridge. So it, you know, one cartridge, two games, you know, Nintendo, like you can say what you will, but they will like, you know, they're, they, they will give you value, value packs down the line. And so this must have been near the end of its lifespan. I think Mario 3 had come out and the Super NES was probably just around the corner, but you know, they were giving these away so they, you know, they were able to give it away uh pretty easily as a door prize. And yeah, I just remember playing Super Mario Brothers for the first time and not even understanding how to jump and like dying to the first, you know, uh mushroom guy that came the Goomba that comes at you uh on the screen and you know, like uh, there's been plenty said about World One One in Super Mario Brothers. How basically the first like few, the first few obstacles you go through teach you how to play the game and teach you everything you need to know it, uh, moving forward in the game. And it's beautiful game design. It's constantly referenced. So, you know, as game designers, you know, uh, we're we're designing a card game, a tabletop game, but it is like it, it is good for us to like definitely learn from other games. And I, I always gravitate towards simple games like Mario Brothers, like the 2D Mario Brothers, which, oh, also there's another new 2D Mario Brothers coming out called Super Mario Wonder 
I think I saw uh, that trailer. That one yeah. I think I did see. Because uh, okay. it has some pretty unique graphics, uh, like animations mm-hmm. of Mario doing some stuff. But it's a, it's a side-scroller, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's 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 which is really exciting for me because I've I always have a soft spot in my heart for the side scrolling Mario's due to that being the first game I ever touched basically in my life. Um, but yeah, no, I'm really excited about that. I'm really excited to someday embark on a video game journey with you as well, uh, making a video game. But uh, right now we have to talk about what it's like to make a card game because that's the we game do we've that, made. Though, I do. Oh want, yeah, sure. I do want to invite the 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 listeners. Uh, to, to weigh in in the comments and let us know what their first system in game was. Uh, I'd really oh. like to understand like what the spread is, how, how old are the, uh, yeah. the people out there and what are they, what are they playing? Where, where does their nostalgia lie? Um, so yeah, let us know. Um, and, and mm-hmm. obviously open invitation on any question of the week. Let us know what your answer is. Uh, we, we'd love to get to know you guys better as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's why we asked the question of the week. We want you to get to know us. And yeah, we want to get to know y'all, the people who are interested in X Seekers of Fortune or just our journey in game design, period. And yeah, I'm just hoping, I'm sure that we're going to feel a little old <laughs> with our Mario Brothers answers when people are coming in with Minecraft and Fortnite as their answers. But yeah, uh, but let's go ahead and take a step into today's topics. Uh, and as I teased up top, uh, and we are, I will say, we're flying a little bit by the seat of our pants. We knew. In general, we wanted to talk about teaching the game, uh, but we hadn't really ironed it out completely until right before we started, which, you know, is perfectly fine because, you know, teaching the game is something that we're still learning about. It might actually be something that we can talk about with each other as much as anything else. So as folks know, if you've listened to every episode up until now, uh, our big debut was at the Houston Comic Palooza, which is Houston's version of a comic com- convention. Uh, we were invited by somebody we've been working with on the game. His name's LD. And we had basically, leading up to that uh, convention, we had gotten our prototype decks ready. We had ordered play mats uh, that specifically to make the game experience more thorough and full. But we had only taught the game so many times to so many people. So I was actually kind of like trying to figure out what is the best way of teaching a game to, you know, to some, a stranger that we've just met because everybody we taught the game to at that point was pretty much a, uh, somebody we knew except for like one exception. So, um, yeah, going into that, Danny, did you have any thoughts uh, or how did you approach the idea of like teaching the game to people at the convention? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of crazy the way we made X Seekers of Fortune in the sense that we we wrote down iterations of the rules, you know, one, two, three, four. But at a certain point, we had made a lot of adjustments, especially after we introduced the heroic feats and really started um, kind of going through the game and having to encounter unique game states and uh, figure out how the rules should govern them. And so we at the time of Comic Palooza, hadn't even put together a, a quick start guide. So, I mean, at that point, the rules were really just in our heads. And, um, you know, we play so much, like it takes, it kind of takes you out of it when you've been play testing uh, the game and playing it at a high level. And then all of a sudden you have to like look at it from the perspective of, of somebody new. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't even really occur to me that I need a strategy for teaching the game uh, until we were sitting down. And I was just like, okay, wait, you know, I mean, you know, that's not a hundred percent true because, you know, we did a lot of demos online and I had practiced kind of talking people through their turns and stuff, but 
I don't know. For some reason, that first uh, in-person experience was a little bit different. Um, but I think you have to recognize that as you begin to teach people the game, not only are you teaching them how to play the game, but you're teaching yourself how to teach the game. Yeah. I mean, it, there's nothing, you know, there's the old Malcolm Gladwell, like, observation. He wrote in, uh, the entire book about it, you know, the 10,000 hours of practice to become a master of something. So there's going to be, there was going to be nothing compared to how many times we taught the game that day at Comic Palooza probably eclipsed how many times we had taught the game before that date period. You know, like, we had taught the game maybe half a dozen times before that day, and that day we probably taught 20, 25 people how to play it. And yeah, I think I was, I was maybe a little bit more, uh, I don't want, I don't want to say proactive, but I was, I was definitely concerned about like, what's the best way to introduce people. You want to sit people down and they're expecting you to provide them entertainment and to, to provide them a good experience. So I was definitely concerned with how best to go about teaching people the game. And I actually went to the YouTube channel. Well, you know, cause I typed, I think I typed in how to teach games or something to that effect how to teach people to play board games and i've been watching a lot of reviews by sit down and shut up uh the board game i, I guess you could call them board game gurus they they create some amazing reviews for board games that are like entertaining to watch even if you don't know anything or have no plans or desires to play the game because it's well past just informative um and they, one of their guys, one of the main guys who uh, works for that site made a video called How to Teach People How to Play Board Games. And I watched that video and the main thing I took from him, because he had a lot of great tips, but it was, his tips were more formulated for your standard board game teaching scenario, which is I'm going to teach my friends at my house or one of their houses how to play a game. And I'm going to specifically be teaching a small group one time. So I couldn't take everything from what he said uh, because some of it was just not going to be applicable for like, you know, trying to get somebody taught and, you know, having fun and, you know, shaking their hand, asking them how they're doing and then get somebody else in the chair. But one of the big things that he said that I took very seriously was how to introduce your game. And uh, if I remember correctly, and it's been a minute since I watched the video or taught anybody how to play the game, but I believe it is you answered these three questions before you start teaching the actual like gritty rules, you answer, who are you? How do you win? And why this is going to be fun. That's great. That's those, I mean, those are all super key uh, things to understand as you're sitting down to play a game, right? Like you, you want to be, I mean, everyone approaches games differently, but generally speaking, you kind of want to understand the perspective uh, from which you're going to be playing the game. You're going to want to understand what you need to be doing to actually have a chance at winning the game. But I mean, it is really, really nice to understand on the front end, like where's the fun coming from? And obviously as you're playing a game, you're going to discover what's fun for yourself all the time. But it is kind of cool to kind of know in advance a little teaser of, Hey, this is where the fun's going to come from. So I think those are great, uh, great questions to have teed up when you're getting ready to sit down with somebody. Yeah. Plus they're probably going to be the first things that somebody tells the next person about the game they're going to you know they're going to be like oh i just played a, you know for our game oh i just played a game where you were like a indiana jones like adventurer and you were trying to you know uh you know get through adventures with and it was fun because you got all these 
on action these like magic like cards you know these action x cards that you know like made the game different and you were like matching you know doing this matching game the entire time you know that sort of thing you just you just want you want to almost you want to make create the package around the experience for them to be you know to hand to them for them to be able to hand to other people and there's a lot i mean we can go into like the idea of marketing you know and how to make an idea that perpetuates itself, which is something we've definitely thought a lot about for making this game and the experience. But I think that's like one of the first places that you can create that. It's like what you say about the game to your uh, your new players is probably what they're going to say about the game. <laughs> what they're probably going to say about the game uh, to the next person that they teach. And uh, in case that picked up, I think my kitten is annoying my little doggy uh, so much that uh, the dog lashed back at it. <laughs> oh, no. That sounds like uh, par for the course for Winston. Yeah, no, he's he's a little he's a little he's in his jerk era for sure. Yeah, so absolutely. So, I mean, I think that's a great point, Joel. I mean, when you're teaching people to play the game, um, they're going to uh, really sort of absorb what you're telling them and they'll add their own things and they'll, they'll, they'll mix it up. But the more you can do to articulate things in a memorable way and a way that presents the game you want to present it, you know, these like little, these little sound bites or talking points that just kind of stick in a person's head, that's going to make sure that it's easier for them to teach your game to other people and that it's going to embed in that some sense of the flavor and the way that you want to be positioning the game with the players, right? So much of sitting down to play a game, you know, also in addition to, you know, like not discounting the game in any way, the rules, the flavor, the mechanics, but the mindset of the player sitting down is tremendously important. And anything you can do to excite people and make them want to sit down and make them, um, give them the opportunity or, or make it easier for them to relate specific mechanics and elements of the game to experiential things that you want them to associate with it. You know, I think that's a awesome um, opportunity that everyone should be taking advantage of. Some examples from our game, I think are, you know, the, the way we've, we've named the heroic feats, but I think the best example is probably the way we just kind of talk about the relationship between leads, adventures, and action X cards. And Joel, I don't know if you want to kind of walk people through kind of how we kind of walk people step by step by step and show the interrelation between those three things as a simple way to express the flow of our game. Well, uh, let me let me see if I get this off the dome, but basically what I what I did and in fact I I separated out I took one of our prototypes and pulled some of the cards out of it in order to have them ready to show off, but essentially in in X Secrets of Fortune, you're an adventurer who is trying to, uh, who's neat, uh, you're an adventurer looking for treasure. To find treasure, you have to complete adventures. And to complete adventures, you have to follow leads. So you match leads to complete adventures to gain access to find treasure. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then when you find, when you complete five adventures, you win the game. Yep, yep. You yeah. follow those leads to complete those adventures to get the treasure. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's interesting because when you're playing with somebody and you explain to them like, okay, so you see that bottom, that's the reward line. When you, whenever you complete an adventure, you're going to get that reward. And it oftentimes 
I notice it like it doesn't resonate with them immediately. But that first time that they kind of collect the leads and they put it together and then they're like, okay, you completed an adventure. Now you get a reward. You know, there's a reason why people go on adventures. Yeah. You know? And then their mm-hmm. like eyes light up a little bit and they're like, oh, okay. Yeah, please give me my reward. <laughs> yes. That is, yeah, that is so true. And I often say, often when you're telling people things, you're telling them just to prepare them for when you're telling them the second time. And then, and the second time you're still preparing them for the third time they hear it. You know, it's like, I, I, I'm pretty sure it's a marketing thing where you just have to, people have to be aware of you before they'll even start, you know, kind of taking you seriously. So I think that also applies to teaching a game. It's like, I can teach somebody, I can like teach somebody the entirety of X Seekers of Fortune, but in t- it, it, before they've touched a card, but none of that's going to make any sense to them if they haven't touched a card and gone through the motions themselves. Because we're humans, uh, I believe hu- being a human is a very experiential, physically experiential experience. And, you know, for us to learn something, you're, you're, you learn through experience, you know, through the act of doing. So, you know, and I think a lot of us say that, like, just, you know, like, I know I'm the kind of person, if I sit down to learn a game, I basically say, just, let's just start playing and you just, you know, you teach me things as they become relevant. And I think that doubly applies for how we do have this complexity creep in our game that we can probably get into because a lot of people are coming to the game with different levels of experience with other games. You know, some people like maybe the most complicated game they've played is Uno, a great game, but you know, a pretty, pretty, uh, you know, pretty simple. Straightforward. Yeah, straightforward. straightforward. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, or, and some people come and they're like, they are TCG sharks, you know, sitting down and the gulf between those two folks in terms of how quickly they can learn the game is noticeable. If you've played a TCG before, especially magic, the gathering, we, we have to, we have to call out, one of the, the one of the greats. Uh, if you've played those games before, you're pretty much ready to compete in the big leagues, like off the you know after oh, a yeah. game. Yeah, you're ready. You're ready to go. But if you if if this is like your first really complicated game, we have to sort of slowly introduce, like more slowly introduce some of the concepts. It might be four or five games before you're utilizing all your toolkit, and mostly because of the heroic feats. Now. Danny, do you have, yeah, I was going to ask, Danny, do you have a particular way that you like to, you know, roll out the game or slow, you know, how do you like to approach teaching the heroic feats to folks who aren't like, you know, used to this style of game? Part of the reason we designed the game the way we designed it is because we wanted to make the game accessible to people who maybe don't have any TCG experience. Um, You know, one of the things that we love is that you know TCGs offer a really fun play experience. There's lots of opportunities to express yourself, um, lots of interesting player decisions, but there's a complexity wall that it's locked behind, and there's not a great on-ramp to that. So we we devise the game and the way we teach the game such that there are three stages of complexity. So stage one is just the match engine, what we call the match engine. Literally, the first time we play it with a lot of people, we're taking out the leads, we're taking out the adventures, and we're not using the Action X cards at all. We're not talking about the heroic feats at all. We're just playing the matching game, which is, hey, okay, you're drawing your leads, you're flipping up your adventures, you're revealing your adventures, you're trying to complete adventures, we introduce you to the final quest, and then that's it. And so a lot of people, especially if they don't have TCG experience, they're like, oh, that's a lot of fun. Like, I wanna do that. And we're like, okay, cool. Like, are you ready for the next thing? And they're like, what's the next thing? And the next thing is the Action X deck. 
And the Action X deck is like, okay, you understand the basic mechanics of the game because you played with the match engine. Now these cards modify the rules of the basic game by giving you advantages or disadvantages to your opponent. And uh, you're going to see that the game becomes different every single time you play it, more complex, more interesting. And so they see it in the first time after playing the match engine, they read that first Action X card and they see what it does. And they're like, oh my God, that's cool. So wait, I get to do this and then I get to do that. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they play that. And for some people, that's a lot to onboard. So they need a few more games playing with that. Um, and then the last phase is introducing the heroic feats. And what I've found, and I think you have found as well, Joel, the best way to introduce the heroic feats is to wait for the moments in gameplay that required us to create that specific heroic feat uh, to begin with. So, you know, you're dealing with, you know, being low on leads and you, you're like, oh, it's going to take me forever to refill my hand and leads and you're behind. You're like, well, this is why we created Dig Within. Did you know that you can actually take one of your adventures, one of your maps, and scrap it in order to draw two leads? You can do that up to once per turn if you're behind or tied. And they're like, oh, really? I can do that? And then slowly but surely, they pick it all up because it resonates then because they're encountering the game states that would require you to have access to the tool for the game to continue to be fun and moving. And... Uh, that's the best way I've found to, to slowly, gradually, incrementally, however you want to say it, um, teach people how to play the full game. Yeah. And that's awesome when we got time to do like a one-on-one -on -one, like learning session or when you're, you know, hopefully when you buy the game at home and you're teaching it to a friend, you can do that incremental thing. It was a whole other beast to throw people in you know, try to try to get them a little bit of, of everything all at once uh, with the uh, in-person demos that really it's like we have time to play a game. Uh, but yeah, I think that you're right. Teaching people how to use heroic feats in times where it's relevant really resonates with them. It makes it it makes them understand why they're there in the first place. Um, you know, same with sabotage. You know, that's like, oh, wow, I can't uh, I can't progress my game because of these, you know, this relic that they have. And it's like, well, that's what sabotage is for. It's like, if their relic is really so bad for you that you can't, you don't feel like you can progress, then you you need to take a t the time to get rid of it. And it is worth getting rid of when you're in that situation. Um, the only other thing I wanna add to this portion of the conversation though, is just the stark difference of teaching people digitally versus teaching people when you have the physical cards right there in front of you. Uh, I don't know how different it felt for you, but it whatever was, you know, at Comic Palooza, whatever disadvantage we had to the fact that we had to really churn people through and try to teach them as quickly as possible to, you know, get somebody else sitting across from us was made up for, in my opinion, at the fact that online you just don't have like your hands to show people, your eye contact to show people. It was so easy just to reach over the table and be like, these cards, like these cards here are this and these cards here are that. I mean, do you, have you noticed like that big of a difference between digital versus physical uh, teaching? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, playing the game physically, teaching physically, it's just easier. It's more intuitive. I mean, it's, it's more natural, <laughs> you know? Um, Tabletopia is a fantastic program, but there's a learning curve to it. 
And you're not only teaching people how to play the game, you're teaching people how to use the program a lot of the times when you're teaching online. And so that in of itself can create um, additional challenges. I'd say like to the extent that there's an upside teaching people digitally versus online, I think, you know, maybe the ability to blow up a card and see it much bigger and it be backlit. And I feel like those, you know, the, some of the, the action X prototypes have a lot of small print on them. And that's something that we're going to correct for the final product, obviously, but you know, your prototype is your prototype. It's not going to be perfect. And I think that some of that text is easier to read online because you have the ability to double click on a card and, and see it blown up. But other than that, I mean, I can't, I'm not sure I can think of another real benefit to playing online, maybe not having to physically shuffle cards. <laughs> We've got some pretty tall Which, decks, so. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We do. I mean, I think any deck, anytime you have a deck that's over, you know, your standard playing card deck, which is 52, I would say 60, you know, once you start going above 60, it can be a little cumbersome to shuffle. Um, so we have to be mindful of that. But uh, there is something to, and I will just say like, the vibe of playing digitally versus the vibe of playing physically is so much different. Whenever I play physically and I'm across from my rival, it just feels so much more tense. Like I'm second guessing every decision, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm looking at every, like, I, I just like, you know, you look down and it's just like, it's sears. It's like right there versus digitally. It feels much more like just a playground and we're just having fun, which, you know, I, I, which is funny, but you know, I, my version, my ideal version of fun is kind of that high stress situation. Uh, you know, that's, I, I play games for the stress that it gives me because I don't, I don't get that much stress in my day to day life. <laughs> so yeah, I definitely prefer the physical game and I prefer teaching the game physically because just your ability to just reach over, grab cards, throw them out there, show people, uh, makes a huge difference. And yeah, I, if you had take anything away from this segment of the episode, I, I would want to just go back to what I learned from shut, shut up and sit down when you're introducing a game to your, you know, if you're a game designer and you're watching this because you're, you want to design your own game, when you are teaching people, whether it be a play test or a demo, start with the table setting. And this is why theme is so important because theme sticks in people's crawl. Uh, you know, start with the, who are you when you're playing this game? How do you win the game? Because I, you know, I, I often think th that's the most important thing you need to know before you learn any rules of the game. Because it kind of contextualizes like why what you're using the other rules and the other mechanics for. Because you know how to win the game. And finally, why it, this is going to be fun, at least in your opinion. And that's like where the most genuine answer comes from. Because what I find fun about X Seekers of Fortune and what Danny finds is fun about X Seekers of Fortune, they're going to be a, like a little different, but people can really tell you're being genuine when you answer that from your heart. Anyways, uh, did you have anything else to add to that, Danny? You know, for me, I would just say the, the, the other thing that I would want people to take away as a key takeaway is um, thinking about how you can articulate those key points about your game that you want people to remember and be able to repeat to other people in a way that is sticky and logical um, you know, take the time, really bullet point out what you feel like you need to uh, articulate and, and, and think through how you can do so in a way that is going to be memorable. Um, and if you feel like there are multiple steps that need to be taken to teaching the game, don't feel like you have to teach everyone everything all at once. Meet people where they are, 
show them the version of the game that you feel like they're ready for and incrementally layer things on top of it rather than throwing them in the deep end and creating a negative play experience out of the gate. I think there's a number of people that had we forced them to play the full game from the start, they would have had a terrible time and, and not even entertained playing the game again. Whereas we've had a lot of instances where people start with the first phase and that's what they need and they slowly graduate up and they feel accomplished as they graduate through the phases. So that, that would be my two cents. <laughs> okay. Well, I think that that was a great point to make. Uh, I, you know, my point being the introduction, your point being like the long, the long game of, of the teaching process. So that's going to wrap up the, the first part of our conversation here today, which is, was about teaching how to teach uh, your board game to folks and what that process looks like. And after the break, we're going to be moving into the tale of how our game was broken twice and how we went to go and fix it. So we'll be right back with you after this break. Welcome back to the Mega Moth Studios podcast, the official podcast for all things Mega Moth Studios related. Um, I'm here with Danny A. Yub, and we are getting into the second topic for today's show, which is, uh, we just wanted to go over the tale of, because, well, basically, we were talking about teaching the game, and sometimes you teach people how to play the game, and sometimes the people that you're teaching they become the master and they teach you about something you didn't see in the game yourself. And that is when you realize that you have a broken game on your hands. And Danny and I, I, I don't want to say we're full-blown experts at this, but we can at least say that one person twice showed us how our game was broken. And we basically had to, you know, hit the emergency button and have like quick conversations about how to fix it. So Danny, do you, I, I want to put this in your court. Do you remember how this is? You're such a good storyteller. You might be able to really set the scene. So, I mean, Patrick, uh, who we've referenced before, a good friend of ours, who, you know, is a, a phenomenal magic player, um, hasn't ever had the time to really uh, put in the, the energy to make a run at, at playing pro or not. But I, I have no doubt that if he really put his mind to it, uh, he, he, could, he could go pro. But um, to the extent that's even a thing anymore. Uh, that's a, that's a different conversation. <laughs> that a sad fiddle music should be put in, plugged in right there. Yeah. Um, no, but no, Pat, sorry. No, but Pat is a phenomenal, um, uh, TCG player, strategy card game player. And we knew that he was someone who's really, really going to be important to us in this process in order for us to get the most out of play testing. Um, and so if we knew anyone who was going to teach us uh, how to play our game better than we understood it, we knew that it was going to be Pat who would find something that we weren't aware was there. Pat broke the game not once, but twice. And here are the times. Okay, so the first time was Joel and I for a very long time wanted to introduce a second win condition to the game, an alternate win condition to the game. And it took us a long time to figure it out. Finally, we had developed the breakthrough victory. We knew we wanted it to have to do with collecting Action X cards. It took us a while to get to a point where we felt like we had even a, a workable solution. And then we were very proud of it. We found something that we thought worked great. And we had played it a bunch and it played exactly the way that we wanted it to. And then we showed it to Pat and we're like, Pat, check it out. Like you can, you can win this game. You can win this, you can win the game this way now. And he looked at it and he watched it and he was just like, okay. And then he just stopped playing the game. 
He like did not play what we would call X Seekers of Fortune at all and just started using this new, because I mean, Breakthrough at that point was a completely new heroic feat and he just spammed it. And it was like, oh, okay, so people can just not play this game at all, spam it and win the game without completing a single adventure. How did we miss that? In fact, <laughs> in fact yeah, I know. In fact, it was actually advantageous for you not to play the game as, as normally intended. So I think, I think to really you know tell the story because i think this is like it, it is almost like a cinematic moment we that night it's like we invited pat to play test because we were super excited about the breakthrough win mechanic and win condition and we wanted just to be like let's just take a check in with patrick and you played against him and he was like on his way to winning and you like I think had just like a miracle turn, uh, like of like I, you know, you just drew the right things and played the right cards, and were able to use the breakthrough win condition to win, you know, win a turn before he was, you know, the next turn I think he was going to win the traditional way, and then he was he was like kind of like okay, I, okay, well let's you know let's try it again, let's see how this goes, and then I played against him one time, and yet again I think very similarly I was able to you know I was playing the game like normal, but at the last moment. I was able to zag and go for the breakthrough win. And I think that that's when it clicked for him. And he actually, he said, okay, I'm going to show you, you know, he, I, he theorized it. He told us what he was going to do. It's like, I'm just going to go for the break, you know, breakthrough win condition. And I think at the time, basically it was almost the same as it is today. The breakthrough win condition was if, when, if you break through and you have seven action X cards between your, uh, action zone, sorry, your your action zone and your archive zone, you win the I game. Don't even think you had and a there was no. I think you just needed to have seven cards in play at that point. Possibly, possibly, and the breakthrough lets you get there. So, the like, so basically, all he did was like, I so in that third game, I I solved uh I solved an adventure first and foremost. And even though I knew what he was going to do, for some reason, I, I like really went hard and I'd played like I had an action X card that I played from my hand and he thwarted it. And then I solved an adventure, drew an action X card and played that from my hand and he thwarted that one too. And then I passed turn and he was behind and then he just started doing his, his solution, which I think one of the things that enabled him to be able to break through so efficiently was because you now you need to break through you need three matching leads but back then you just needed three to discard three leads three of any lead so you drew one card for turn you get one lead for the beginning of your turn then he would t use his adventure that he drew to dig within so that got him three leads it did not matter what leads they were he didn't have to sculpt his hand he just had three leads breakthrough so every turn he gets one guaranteed breakthrough that means there's a seven turn clock on the game minimum and, and 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 yeah i mean and he just like and not only that but you're drawing action x cards with breakthrough so if your opponent isn't doing the same strategy you like the way that we described it is like you're basically playing a control deck versus like an aggro deck in magic you know it's just like you just have an answer you have so many answers you have so many tools the relics the feats the sites that you're drawing are all like working against your opponent i did Maybe I solved one more adventure that game, but I did not get anywhere compared to 
what his board state looked like at the end. And I, I had to just sit back and be like, yeah, that was not fun. Yeah. Well, <laughs> at least not for me. I, here's the thing. I mean, and this was the biggest takeaway. Obviously we learned the game was broken, but it was an important lesson for me as a game designer in general, which I think this is something that everyone who's out there designing games and thinking about designing games, you know, can learn from, which is sometimes you miss really, really big things that are broken in the game because you're thinking about the game from the perspective of how you're supposed to play the game. And oftentimes, because you're thinking about how you're supposed to play the game, you miss the degenerate alternate strategy that someone can come up with. Look, we, we catch a lot of degenerate strategies as we're pitching ideas back and forth. You're not going to pitch everything. You're not going to catch everything. I mean, there's just too much uh, that, you, that, that can, can happen. Uh, you know, interactions can happen in a complex game where... You know, you're, you're just not going to see it, uh, especially if you're not thinking about it just from the standpoint of what is the optimal way to win the game instead being like, OK, here's the the way the game is played and people are going to play it. And so it's really, really behooves you to step out from the game and to take that alien perspective and say, OK, if I was looking at this without understanding what, you know, the game designers intended for me to do and if I understood how to win the game, how would I go about doing it and is it how the game designers want me to play or is it actually to do some degenerate thing that has nothing to do with how the game is intended to be played? Yeah, very true. It is, it is hard to catch those things in this intricate web that we weave. And yeah, I think as the game creators, we don't see, we, we can't, we don't see everything because we are approaching it mostly from the, you know, the correct way of playing. And this often happens in video games too. There you have an entire graphical physics system to have to worry about where, you know, I often see, you know, people who really like to mess with video games, they'll just start really pushing the boundaries from the moment they hold the controller and control is given to the player. They'll just start like, you know, running as fast as they can in a circle to see if the graphics can actually keep up. And it often they can't, you know, and these, even in the double AAA games, like the graphical system is like held together with bubblegum shoes, you know, a uh, shoestring and a prayer. And like, if you really just try to play the game outside of like, you know, walking, you know, just walking at the normal speeds, it falls apart. Um, fortunately, we don't have to worry about a graphic system. We just have to worry about a rule system. But the second way that Patrick broke the game, which was only like, I want to say this happened within a month, like like weeks apart from each other, maybe, you know, uh, but, and they also involved dig within. Um, do you want to set up the combo that Patrick utilized to like, just create a, a like a perpetual stalemate in the game while he gained advantage? Yeah. I mean, you dig within definitely is a, a it's probably the thing we need to be most careful about as we're designing new things for the game, because it is something that can enable you to have an explosive infusion of resources. And then depending on what the incentives are for the player, you know, if, if the player doesn't care about being behind uh, and they just want to use resources, dig within becomes a problem really fast. So what dig within says is that once per turn on your turn, if you're winning, uh, sorry, if you are losing or at parity, you may scrap a map, uh, which is essentially just discarding a map from your active adventure zone in order to draw two leads. Um, and then there's another ability that we have that you can only do when uh, you're at parity or losing, and that's called infiltrate. And what infiltrate says is once per turn on your turn, you may discard 
any two leads to have your rival reveal their hand, you choose a card, and they discard it. Uh, well, actually, they bury it, right? They bury it, which is the distinction there is simply that they're putting the card on the bottom of the deck as opposed to in the discard pile to ensure that the rival can't just pick it up immediately. Anyway, so it used to be, you know, you could do you could infiltrate once per turn, you could dig within once per turn. There was no restriction there. And there didn't seem to be a really clear reason why there should be until <laughs> Patrick showed us something that, in retrospect, should have been a little bit more obvious. But again, this is where, you know, thinking about how you, you, you know, want people to play the game versus how they will play the game uh, becomes important again. Do you want... No, yeah. I, I wanted... <laughs> yeah, I wanted to step in here because I, I'm the unfortunate soul who had yeah. to go through both of these situations. So in the, fir in the first example, Patrick... It clicked in Patrick's head between games, and he basically said, "Going into the next game, I am going to show you." He was he like was like a gauntlet throwdown. I am going to show you how your game has a flaw, and that's and that's like how he showed us the breakthrough mechanic, which we still need to go back and talk about how we fix that. But we can talk about the fixes for both here at the end. The difference with the infiltrate dig within combo is he realized it mid game. And I feel like I realized that he realized, you know, that the game was broken, you know, in real time. You know, it's it's as though you it almost started to feel like Groundhog's Day because the way that this combination worked is you draw a lead per turn. It's yet again, it's this it's this lead advantage that you get from dig within. You draw one lead for your for, for your turn, and then you draw you sacrifice your map or you uh you uh scrap your map to draw two more. That gets you three leads for your turn. And then you only have to discard two leads uh, to infiltrate, which takes away your, you discard two leads and that takes away your opponent's lead that they drew for their turn. And they can't, if, the, if you're behind and they're ahead, they can't use dig within on their turn. So they only got to draw the one lead per turn and you use your three lead advantage, you take one away, or you take two away to take away their one lead, now you're up one lead, and they have made zero progress. So it became, like, it took me th two or three turns of going through this process to realize that I was in, like, this Groundhog's Day type scenario where it's like, you know, I, it clicked for me, and I'm, like, sitting there, and I know Pat's already figured it out. He figured it out, like, two turns ago. And now it's dawning on me while, and you're, you're on the outside watching in, but it's dawning on me. It's like, oh, I'm in stasis. I'm not making any forward progress. The best I can hope for is to draw an adventure that's the exact combination of leads in my hand. And I don't even think I had five leads in my hand. So it's not like I, you know, I, I had wiggle room. And that was like my only way to move forward while Patrick is sitting there going up one lead per turn and sculpting his hand. So he could, you know, potentially get to, once he decided, okay, I'm done with this game, I'm going to move forward. He could amass, well, he couldn't amass that many adventures, but he could put himself in a situation where he could possibly have solved multiple adventures in one turn. So he could have gone from being like behind to being in the final quest in the course of one turn if he had gone if he had stayed in this long enough and i think we got to the point where we're like e either either we decided okay we understand something's wrong here so we have to solve it and we either scrapped playing that game or we just were like okay let's let's just move forward 
pretend that we've solved that issue. We'll figure out the solution. But we basically had an emergency meeting with Patrick on the line while, uh, you know, while, once, once like the two, like once Patrick and myself realized what we were doing and you observed it happening for a few more turns and real, you know, and we, it clicked for all of us that there, this, the, the game, this was broke. It was broken. It was no fun, uh, to be in my shoes in that situation. And I don't think it was that fun for Patrick either. I mean, it just, it was just a tactic to elongate the game indefinitely. Yeah, and I think that was the one of the reasons why we missed it is like okay, you can do that, but why? Like why would you do it? There's no you're not getting ahead, but then you realize like it kind of doesn't matter. I mean like I think because you are incrementally getting one lead per turn, um I mean I think there maybe was like a countermeasure you could have taken, but it it ultimately ends up in just like some really terrible stalemate and even even if maybe it's not something we think anyone would ever do, it's better to just kind of patch those holes when you see them just to make sure that someone's out there not just being a Grinch. Yeah, you could say that it's called sandbagging, I believe. Uh, you know, you could just sandbag the entire game. In a competitive setting, you know, I, it's certainly possible that someone's just going to try to run a clock. Or, or you're in a situation, but especially with the way that we want to run our competitive scene, where it's about overall points that you gain per each game. If if they know if they know that if you can't develop your game board state and they could just run out the clock, then you can't gain enough points to you know take you from second place to first place, or you know you know move you in the top eight. And if they're either spiteful or that's to their advantage because they're the ones who you would be getting, who would be getting knocked down. I mean, you know, I want to say that there's been a few controversies in Formula One because that's based, you know, it's a point system over the course of mini games. It's not just the who wins the race that day. Yeah, that person gets to celebrate. But if you're going for the big prize, you're trying to, you know, do well over the course of many races. And I think that there's been a few times where people intentionally sabotaged other racers uh, in order to keep them, you know, to keep the points where they are. It's like if, you know, it's it's better for me that you lose this race than it is for me to win this race. So I might as well just knock you out of this race, even if it takes me out too. Absolutely. But those were definitely uh, <laughs> tough medicine. I mean, I do want to just say before we jump to the fixes, um, when, when, when things like that happen with the game, with your game, I mean, especially when it takes you a long time to even get to the point where you, you have the starting point of a solution or something that you thought solved, you know, something that you really cared about solving in the game, it can be really disheartening. And you can really say like, oh man, you know, but, you know, take take it as a good thing. I mean, you don't want to ship a broken game. You found it out. Um, and, and honestly, if you put your time and energy into trying to solve that problem, you sleep on it, you're probably going to come up with something that you like. So... Yeah, and that's exactly what we did, right? Yeah, no. Uh, so to go through the solutions, uh, I guess I'll go through both of them back to back. So, uh, I think Breakthrough was a little bit... It, it's funny because also in this, we had the two paths to a solution. The Breakthrough victory was so hurting. You know, it hurt us so bad to see the game get, get that mangled by us introducing this thing that we had wanted to put in the game for so long and we were trying to find a pathway there we just always knew it's like games are cool when you have when when you have an alternate win condition and you can zig instead of zag 
in a game to to win in a different way. And I and we definitely have seen a lot of players gravitate to trying to figure out the breakthrough win condition since we've been introducing it to people. Um, so it really hurt us when we were like, okay, this is broken and we didn't know how to fix it. And we had like probably a day, day and a half, two days, maybe longer of conversation. And it, it's, it's kind of a complicated solution, but basically we had to lock the breakthrough win condition behind uh, the main win condition. We had to say, to win the game normally, you have to complete five adventures and basically you have to get to the final quest and complete one more adventure. We were we decided that you have to make it true for the breakthrough vi victory. Otherwise, it's just such a, you know, it's like, a dry, you know, like, I don't know, if you could drive backwards to go over the finish line and complete a race that way. It's just so breaking of the game. So we decided to um, lock breakthrough behind you had to be in the final quest for the breakthrough win condition to work and i think that that made such a big difference and it's amazing how long it took us to get there but we talked through a lot of different solutions we talked about just increasing the number from seven to like 10 um and a few other things uh but we also yeah but we also made breakthrough you had to have three matching leads instead of just, and you had to just, you had to discard three matching leads instead of just discarding three of any lead, which made it a much uh, something something you wouldn't just do every turn. The the really important aspect of locking it behind the final quest was that we had to find a way to ensure that people were incentivized to continue to complete adventures, because part of what broke the game so badly was the idea that you didn't have to do anything with adventures in order to win the game. Um, and and if you don't have to do anything with adventures, again, that lets you be perpetually behind and have access to all the fun tools that you get when you're behind um, and really warps the game. So locking it behind the final quest was absolutely necessary to incentivize players to play the game the way we wanted them to. Yeah. And uh, when it came to the infiltrate dig within um, conundrum, the combo that was breaking the game there. That one we actually figured out in the moment. It was, uh, I mean, I don't want to toot my own horn, but we you, we were sitting there and I uh, just like talking through the problem that the, the combo presented. And I just stated, okay, what if instead of you can infiltrate and dig within if you're tied or behind, what if it's you can dig within or infiltrate? You can only do one on your turn. And sometimes the simplest solution is the most elegant and the correct one, because I, I, we haven't even talked, I think, since we since we pitched that and changed it. I don't think we've talked about anything, any alternatives. I, I, yeah, I feel like every now and then we're like, well, what could what else could we do with breakthrough the breakthrough win condition? How could we modify it further? And sometimes we have a little thought experiment. But uh, when it comes to the dig within infiltrate it hasn't even been a really topic of conversation until today, until we're telling the story right now. Yeah, no, absolutely. That, that pretty well summarizes it. I mean, again, just to kind of wrap it up, you know, go out there, find people to break your game, be grateful when they do. You don't want to ship a broken game. Um, don't be discouraged when the game breaks. If you sleep on it, you spend time and you're creative, you'll figure it out. You know, focus on how you can incentivize your players to do what you want them to do, and you'll be okay. Yeah.
100%. And yeah, I mean, it, I guess if you do end up shipping a broken game, just embrace how it's broken and try to make a, a, a new game out of it, if you will. So uh, to go over what we're going to be talking about next time um, in on the official Mega Moth Wait, how, how does it go again? The official Megamoth Studio podcast. Megamoth Studios. That's podcast. what we're called. The official Megamoth yeah. Studios podcast. The official Megamoth Studios podcast. So what we're going to be covering next time is tension and drama. So if this episode was all about like kind of mechanics and in teaching the game, the next episode is going to be about uh, how to create a, a turn your game from just being a set of mechanics into actually being an, an experiential story. And we have, at the very least, two ways that we, uh, uh, you know, put infuse that into X Secrets of Fortune that we were very intentional about. And we're going to let you in on all that in the next episode, which should be coming next week. So before we get to our outro, Danny, um, it's time for me to be tortured. I believe you have a little something for it. I me. sure do. I do think that this week you'll find it less torturous. Okay. Uh, I can't make we'll, any we'll promises. S- we'll see. We'll, we'll I'll be the judge. Well, I, I will tell you it's going to be torturous no matter what because I'm looking forward to getting to the end the end of the episode so I can take a restroom break. Okay. Well, do you want a but, break to go to the bathroom and come back and do this? No, no. I, I want I want the tension of having to, to, to wait. Okay. All right. All okay, right. So, so I need your go. participation for this. We're going to do something that okay. is a, a little bit different today. I'll explain what it is, but only after I get you to commit to some things. So first, <laughs> yeah. go ahead. I need you to give me three categories, uh, just random categories. That first three categories that come to your mind. Cate- like uh, that's that's such a broad question. Uh, categories, I guess. Cars. Okay. Does that count as a category? That as a category. Uh, now for some reason, road signs. Road, <laughs> road signs. Okay. You can see where my brain's at. Uh, give me a wild card. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to go uh, movie theater snacks. Okay, movie theater snacks. Let's do movie theater snacks. Okay, cool. All right, so okay. well, this is this is going to be something that we do periodically. I think it's going to be super fun. Um, although I'm going to have to figure out different ways to come up with different categories. But okay, so we're going to do movie theater snacks. You ready? So this is yeah. a flash draft. So we each have to take turns drafting our top five movie theater snacks. Once it's been picked, okay. you cannot pick it. So you get your first round oh pick. Oh, my goodness. So you got you to gotta be careful. So I'm going to go ahead and start off here and give you the first round pick for movie okay. theater snacks. So what are you going to take with your first round pick? I mean... My girlfriend would kill me if I didn't pick this one, and I think it's going to be fairly obvious uh, <laughs> to anybody listening. Be- uh, no, it's not going to be controversial at all. It's going to be popcorn. Okay. I, I, I feel like it had to be the first pick. If I didn't pick that first, I think the, the comment section, if we have a comment section, would be a fire. Okay. That no 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 no. That's that that's good. That's good. I'm gonna I'm gonna go a little less traditional here. Still within the realm of traditional. Uh, I'm going to go for nachos. I'm going to take nachos with my first round pick. I like, uh, you know, I even though it's very rare that you get anything that resembles a real nacho at a movie theater, unless you're going to like an Alamo draft house or something like that, usually you get like some sort of highly processed cheese dip. I don't know. I mean, it feels like highly processed cheese dip has a place in the world. So yeah, at movie theaters yeah. and ball games. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. All right. What's your second round pick? Uh, okay, cool. Um, I don't know if this counts, 
but I gotta have the combo here. Okay. I'm gonna say a soda pop. Okay, I think that counts. I thought about taking soda, okay. but ultimately <laughs> I opted not to because I really wanted some processed cheese dip. All right, so number four, I'm gonna take a hot dog. I, you know, every now and then I really love a good old fashioned hot dog and a movie theater and that foil wrap. Uh, yeah, I'm in for a hot dog. Yeah, I can't remember the last time I saw like that style of hot dog at a movie theater, but I do know what you mean. And there is something like that's a hot dog that you cannot make at home. There is something about the way they cook it or the ingredients that they get. It has just, you know, the bun is just this right level of wet. Yeah, they steam the bun. I don't know <laughs> the right level yeah, of wet. Yeah, that might yeah, be it. Steaming the bun is the <laughs> yeah. right level of wet for a hot dog bun. <laughs> I know, but if some reason there's like something appealing, even if it's not like what you would want, it's there's something appealing about it. So I, I totally get that. So okay, I, I like I guess what I, I guess what I'm trying to do is see if I could get my full combo on at this point because we got we got the popcorn, we got the soda pop, probably Coke Zero for me at this day okay. and age if they oh, have yeah, it, definitely. and if they don't. Diet Diet Dr Pepper is my follow up after they after they don't have Coke Zero, and if they don't have either of those, then I'm just I'm just asking for a refund on the soda. But um, I'm going to try sneakily to get. Um, so I'm I, this might be the controversial pick. I'm somebody who likes a a candy, a chocolatey candy to go with my popcorn. That salty savory thing, uh, or, or sweet and savory is just one of my favorite flavor combinations. So I'm trying to think what would be, I mean, M&Ms are not bad. Uh, some people go for the, uh, what is it, uh, Milk Duds? And I have to give them credit. That is amazing, but it's also a little much for me and my teeth. Uh, so, I, you know, I like, I, this might not be the same kind of sweet, but I think it pairs really well with the popcorn. I'm going to go with Reese's. Reese's uh, Pieces. You put that on top of your popcorn, and you kind of swirl it around. You get a little breezes in in your popcorn. It's just delicious, and it kind of adds a different kind of crunch and texture. In I, don't, there too. I don't think that's very controversial. I do have to ask you though, because it's obviously. So, are milk duds out because they chafe your mouth? <laughs> no, it's actually I just. Well, and you know what? I have to. I do need to try milk duds again. I think I went way longer in my life without addressing a couple of cavities, and because of that, during like you know probably this over five year span i think that sugary foods like really like sugary foods that you know stick to your teeth really lost their appeal because i was like stubbornly just being like well i just think i have sensitive teeth and it's like no buddy you have cavities and you need to get those drilled out of your head um but i th so i think milk duds i just got an aversion to but it could have changed like i need to try a milk done again maybe it's not as bad as Are it they was brace gang maybe once I don't think so. I'll, you know what? I'll next time I see some milk duds, I'm going to pick some up and I'll tell you just how they how they go these days. But I do know like that the if if you have real fresh popcorn and milk duds, it's like the milk duds just get to melt a little and it makes it like so much easier to eat and they kind of coat the popcorn. So I get the milk duds that and I fully I fully support milk dud eaters. It's just not quite for me at the moment. And I hope to go you back. fully support milk duddy eaters. <laughs> Probably one of my favorite sound bites from this episode. <laughs> okay. I'm going to take with my third round pick soft pretzel. Oh my goodness. You are, you are rounding out like the actual food. Well, food, you know what? I, I should say like, you're one. actually making a I meal. I love soft pretzels. They're like one of my uh -huh. things. I get them whenever I can. And look, I don't, I don't want to put anyone on blast here, but star cinema girl in, in the Houston area, you had amazing pretzels. 
I went there for the pretzels. And then the last time I go, you serve me the same pretzel, but instead of a gargantuan two pretzels, you're, we're down to three little rods. I mean, it's like, come on, guys. What are we doing here? You you were the best pretzel game in town. And now yeah. you're a nobody. Well, not really. Some, I mean, they're some, still really good, but there's just not enough. Some bottom line guy came in there and was like, we're making 25 cents on the pretzel and we need to be making 75 cents on the pretzel. So we're going to downgrade, downgrade this and charge the same amount. You, and you know what? I, I can't I can't support that sort of thing. Sometimes you have to have a loss leader. That pretzel probably got you in the door multiple times. Oh, you could have chosen any movie theater, but you chose them for the pretzel. That is actually true. Some days I wake up and I'm like, yeah. hey, I want a pretzel. I guess I'm going to see a movie today. You know? <laughs> yeah. And then now it's just kind of like, well, I guess I'm, I'm not. I found somebody else who's got a pretzel that's not as good as Star Cinema, but is closer to what they mm -hmm. used to have than what they have currently. So now I go there to have my pretzel. Okay. So now remind me, Dan, I got, I got popcorn. I got soda. Reese's I got pieces. Reese's so pieces. So you're on your four. So I still have two, two. I still have two Don't picks. Okay. Don't waste them. These got to be good. Don't waste them. <laughs> oh, it's Tom Hanks at the end of Saving Private Ryan. Don't waste it. Um, you know, uh, it's like, oh, I have a partner and I, you know, she is like, I'll say this. I'm a weirdo sometimes, folks. Like, you got to understand this. If you haven't picked this up already, I can go to a movie by myself, order nothing and just sit there and watch the movie. Like, I... You know, and I do that to save money, uh, like whenever I go to the theater by myself. But now I'm with a partner and she insists like it's like she could be full from dinner and she still insists on picking up movie theater candies. And so I have to think about her like in my picks and, you know, I'm going to just go ahead and make this pick one like the popcorn. We agree upon the Reese's on top of the popcorn. We agree upon the soda pop. She might want lemonade, but hey, we can get lemonade first. and I can refill with my Coke Zero. But something that I wouldn't normally pick for myself, but I'm doing it for her because sometimes you got to, it's red vines. Oh, red vines are great. She has excellent taste. Yeah. Yes. I, you know what? She's converted me a little. It's like, it's one of those things. If red vines are near me, I'll eat one, but I probably wouldn't go out of my way to buy a package of red vines myself. How often are red vines near you? <laughs> Whenever I'm at a movie with my girlfriend, <laughs> I guess, and then like the the following days, they're probably the package is probably lingering around. You know, I'll pick it up and have like one or two. Okay. You know, here and there. Red vines is a good one. I'm not going to complain about mm -hmm. red vines. No complaints. There. Oh, though I will I will say biting it off and using it as, as a straw. Not that is something that's fun. Ooh. Although having a sugar straw and a sugar drink often kind of. One of those two things is getting diminished. You can't you can't do a sugar and a sugar at the same time, like especially mm -hmm. a sugary drink after eating some sugar. I mean, the sugary drink just loses its sugariness. Oh, that is that is yeah. true. That yeah. is true. Something to think about. That's, well, that's and that's actually a tip. I would say uh, I don't know if this is a tip, but maybe experiment. I had a Coke float, a f you know, a few years ago. I haven't had this in a while, or at the very least, I had like an ice cream and a soda, and I got a diet soda and uh, to go with like a vanilla ice cream. And I was like, this gives me all the cola cola flavor, but lets the ice cream do the sugary side of it. It's like it's like actually, I might even suggest better to do your Coke floats with a diet version of your soda of choice. Yeah, and that's not a bad idea. I will say I'm a little disappointed now because I feel like I should have a candy. Also, because I'm like, what else can you get from a normal movie theater snack stand? <laughs> I mean, I don't. I, I mean, I don't think I'm going for the pickle right now. I mean, I know there are people out there who are definitely pickle people. I'm not the kind of person who wants to munch down on an enormous pickle in the middle of a movie. I love pickles. Don't get me wrong, but it's just it's not like a movie theater vibe for me. 
Um, all right. Red Vines would have been my candy pick, so I feel like you sniped that one. I'm a little angry about it. A little, 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 little frustrated. Um, there's some really weird candies that you really don't see anywhere besides movie theaters, like Juju Fruits and Snow Caps. Like, but I'm not taking those. Um, not taking Good and Plenty, although Good and Plenty, Good and Plenty is like my dad's jam. I'm gonna go with. Um, I'm going to go with a, I'm going to take the peanut M&Ms. The peanut M&Ms is a classic, a little bit of chocolate, a little bit of peanut, not so far removed from Reese's Pieces. Frankly, I probably would have taken Reese's Pieces over this, but we're talking fourth pick and I'm, I'm I've got second pick. So, uh, all right, we're going to go peanut M&Ms. Okay. Final pick. Yeah. Cool. I know, and you know what? I'm already at a feast level. Like, and then one of the th- one of the things I love to go with is, what is enough is a feast. You know, if you have enough, then you might as well have a feast. You know, there's no reason to have extra. But I do have five picks. I need to pick. You know, like what would be if I didn't get something from earlier? What would fill in here? And you know, part of me like you know, movie theater candy i feel like in the 90s it would have been the same all the way down like every theater you go to would have all had the same offering since the hot dogs the nachos the pretzels are almost of the past when it comes to movie theaters and i'm trying to think what about the unconventional stuff like if you go to an alamo draft house i could say beer or cocktail or milkshake you know the uh, or pizza i don't know draft house offers all those and i used to work at two different movie theaters that had uh, some off the wall eclectic you know things i would say so I'm going to go with the unconventional, something you would probably find out a movie theater this day and age. And I'm going to say a Americano. Like, you know, uh, just, you know, sometimes you go and see a late movie and you, you really want to see the movie, but the day has really taken it out of you. And you just know, like, I need that extra little bit of buzz to focus in on this. So, uh, you know, I've, I've often taken in, you know, it's like the soda is there for the flavor, the Americano that's there you know, for the, the purpose, the, the caffeinated purpose. So I'm going to, I'm going to answer that. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to stick to traditional movie theater snacks because I, you know, I feel like rounded out and honestly, as much as I I dogged on it, um, for round four, I kind of feel like I'm stuck with the pickle. So (laughs) (laughs) pickle. I mean, I like, don't get me wrong. I like pickles, but it has to be, you know, I like, I prefer it to be fried. Ooh, fried, fried pickle pickles. Chips. That would be good. We had fried pickles not too yeah. long ago together. Oh, they were so good. You know, that, that's, uh, and here you called out your local theater. I'm going to call it the Alamo Draft House as a whole. You guys used to have an amazing fried pickle with an amazing aioli to dip it in or ranch. You had, maybe it was a homemade ranch. And then you t- it went from the pickle chips like every place should have to these long stringy style pickle fries and I am uh, like my girlfriend and I and I got that one time and we just knew never again. It, they were just not it's like you want something from fried pickles. And this was a completely out of left field and just does not hold up maybe the way that you were they were hoping for it to. Hopefully they go back. But yeah, yeah absolutely. And, no. and Sonic has terrible fried pickles as well. I don't like Sonic's fried pickles and Subway sucks as well. Well, I didn't even know that those two places. No, had Subway them, doesn't you know. have I, them. I, they just suck. <laughs> <laughs> well, amen to that, brother. We can agree on that one. Well, if that take, took care of the something random for this week, which was quite random, I wasn't expecting to uh, sit and think so hard and long about like my movie theater snacks of choice. Um, I think we're ready to just you know wrap this episode up. So I just want to 
Well, just making sure, Danny, was were you yeah, good? I'm good. Okay, cool. Well, let's go ahead and uh, do some of our outro stuff because I need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> So uh, you might have noticed that we are now rocking a nice theme music, and that theme music is by our good friend James Hilden. And our episodes are always, as always, are produced and edited by William Wymore. Now we have some social medias for you to check out. If you want to check us out on TikTok, if if you're a Zoomer and that's your uh, social media of choice, you can check us out at Megamoth Studios, all one word. Uh, Danny curates that stream, yeah, and like, he's doing a fantastic job of TikTok, it. TikTok is for for <laughs> Zoomers and other people as well, millennials, uh, millennials with ADHD, you know, Gen X. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't want to. Gen know, X. We'll, we'll cut it off there. <laughs> Any. Every, I mean, I, I would love to, I would love to see, we should go and watch boomer TikTok as like a, maybe that could be a stretch goal is we just have to sit through boomer TikTok. Um, so if you want to check us out on Instagram, if you're more of a picture person than a video person, you can see us at X underscore seekers underscore of underscore fortune and Facebook. It's just straight X seekers of fortune. Just, you know, uh, not one word with the spaces, no underscores. And then and then there's the big exciting news that is probably a, this news is a few weeks old by the time you hear it, but you can play the demo uh, version of X Seekers of Fortune right now on the internet. Uh, you, you can find details on our website, but if you uh, have a Tabletopia account, you can search us out there and play. You just need to bring your own rival for right now. Yeah, actually, cool, um, cool thing. I mean, at least right now, who knows what's going to happen, but if you Google X Seekers of Fortune, it's probably going to be the second thing you find uh, is, is the Tabletopia link, which will take you to the lobby and you can play. Yeah. So it's not hard to find. And the first thing you'd... Yeah, and the first thing you would find would be our website, which would also have links to the Tabletopia. So no excuses. Both of options. Google X Seekers. Yeah. You know what? Check us out on Google, X Seekers of Fortune. You can find us there. <laughs> Follow your fortune. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, uh, Danny, do you have anything to say to the folks before we go? Uh, yeah. yeah. You know, be cool. Stay safe. <laughs> be cool and stay safe, Fortune Seekers, and we'll see you next right, time. Later, guys. <laughs>